Section 18 of a commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 12, verses 1 to 21. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. After Paul has treated of those subjects with which it was necessary for him to commence in erecting the kingdom of God, and shown that we must seek for righteousness from one God, and look for salvation only from his mercy, and that the sum of all our happiness is placed and daily offered to us in Christ alone, he now, according to the very best arrangement, proceeds to consider the method for forming our moral character. Since the soul is renewed, as it were, into a heavenly life, by the knowledge of God and of Christ, which bringeth salvation, the conduct of life itself also is in a manner formed and regulated by the holy admonitions, exhortations, and precepts of his wisdom. For you will in vain manifest your zeal and care for the regulating of men's conduct in life, if you have not first proved that the origin of all righteousness exists in God and Christ, and thus shown how the sons of Adam may be raised from the death of sin. This is indeed the leading distinction between the gospel and philosophy, for though philosophers discourse in a noble manner, and which merits great praise on account of the genius they display concerning morals, yet all the ornament that shines forth in their precepts is nothing else but the splendid outside of a building without a foundation. For, by omitting the principles on which morality should rest, they present to our view a mutilated doctrine, and as it were a body without a head. The manner of teaching by the papists is much the same, for though they incidentally speak of faith in Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit, yet it is distinctly seen how much nearer they approach the heathen philosophers than Christ or his apostles. And as the philosophers, before they make any laws concerning morals, discuss the end and design of goodness, and inquire into those sources of virtues from which they may afterwards search out and derive all their duties, so Paul hath here determined the principle from which all the parts of holiness flow, namely that we are redeemed by the Lord for this very end, that we may consecrate to him ourselves and all our members. But we will be amply repaid by a close examination of every part of this passage. I beseech you by the mercies of God. We know that men of corrupt minds gladly lay hold of everything proposed in Scripture concerning the immense goodness of God for the purpose of indulging the flesh. Hypocrites, on the other hand, as if the grace of the Lord extinguishes their zeal for a holy life and opens a gate for boldness in sin, maliciously obscure, as far as they can, their knowledge of God's goodness. And this declaration of the Apostle shows that men can never worship God with earnest affection, nor be roused with sufficient eagerness to fear and obey him, until they clearly understand how much they owe to divine mercy. It is sufficient for papists if they extort by terror, I know not what kind of compulsory obedience. But Paul, that he might bind us to God, not by servile fear, but by a voluntary and cheerful love of righteousness, allures us by the sweetness of that grace in which our salvation is contained, and at the same time upbraids our ingratitude if, after experiencing so kind and liberal a father, we do not in return study to devote ourselves entirely to his service. And Paul's exhortation is more powerful in proportion as he excels all others in illustrating the grace of God. For that heart must be harder than iron which is not inflamed by the doctrine already stated by the Apostle to be the love of God, and does not feel the abundant kindness of the Lord displayed in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say of those who consider all exhortations to a life of virtue to be taken away when the salvation of man is placed in the grace of God alone, since a pious mind can be formed to obey God by no precepts and by no sanctions, so surely as by a serious meditation upon the divine mercy exhibited to itself? We may here also at the same time observe the gentleness of the spirit of the Apostle, because he preferred rather to manage and govern the faithful by admonitions and faithful entreaties than by rigid commands, since he knew such a mode of treatment would be more successful with docile characters. 
that you may present your bodies. To know ourselves to be consecrated to God is the beginning of a proper course of life for attaining good works, since it hence follows that we cease to live to ourselves with the intention of devoting all the actions of our lives to God. Two things, therefore, are here to be considered. First, that we are the Lord's. In the second place, that we ought to be devoted to Him on this very account, because it is dishonouring the holiness of God to offer anything to Him which has not been first consecrated. This position being granted, it necessarily follows that we ought to meditate on holiness during our whole life. And if we relapse into uncleanness, we cannot avoid the appearance of sacrilege, since it is nothing else than the profaning of what was sanctified. Great propriety of expression is also everywhere preserved. Paul particularly states that our bodies ought to be offered as a sacrifice to God, by which he insinuates that we have not authority over ourselves, but are wholly devoted to the power of God, which must necessarily be the case unless we renounce and therefore deny ourselves. He afterwards declares by the additional epithets the quality of the sacrifice, for when he calls it living, he signifies that we are offered as a sacrifice to God for the purpose of being raised to newness of life, and of having our former life destroyed, and our conduct changed. He means by the name holiness the property of the sacrifice we have mentioned, for a sacrificial oblation is confirmed when sanctification has preceded its ratification. The third epithet not only teaches us that our life is properly regulated if we conduct this sacrificing of ourselves according to the will of God, but also produces uncommon consolation because it instructs us that our endeavours and zeal are grateful and acceptable to God when we devote ourselves to innocence and holiness. And by bodies he does not merely mean bones and flesh, but the whole mass of which we consist, and he cites this phrase that he may point out all our constituent parts by this one expression. For the members of our bodies are the instruments by which we execute the actions of our lives. In another passage the Apostle, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, requires of us not only our whole body but our soul and spirit. In ordering us to offer ourselves he makes an allusion to the sacrifices under the Mosaic dispensation which were presented before the altar as in the presence of God, and he elegantly points out our alacrity in listening to the commands of God for the purpose of immediately yielding them obedience. Whence we infer that all those who do not intend to worship God err and wander in a miserable manner from the truth. We now also understand what kind of sacrifices Paul commends to the Christian church. For being reconciled to God by the one sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are, on his account, all made priests, with the view of dedicating ourselves and all we have and do to the glory of the Most Holy. No expiatory sacrifice remains to be offered, nor can this be attempted without great dishonour to the cross of Christ. Your reasonable service. I think the Apostle added this sentence to supply an explication and confirmation of the proceeding, as if he had said, Present yourselves a sacrifice to God, if you are resolved in your minds to offer him worship, for this is the proper way of honouring the Lord of heaven and earth, and such as depart from the method here prescribed, entirely err as worshippers of an infinite sovereign. And if God is then properly worshipped when all our actions are regulated according to his commands, let all human inventions in worship be removed and driven from among us, which God himself justly abominates, since obedience is better than sacrifice. Men indeed smile with complacency on their own inventions, and display a vain show of wisdom, as is stated in another part of the Apostle's writings. But we hear what the heavenly judge declares in opposition to this by the mouth of Paul. For when the Apostle calls that a rational worship which God has commanded, he rejects everything as foolish, insipid, and marked by unhallowed rashness, which we endeavour to establish in opposition to the rule of his word. And be not conformed to this world. The expression world has many significations, and is here understood to mean the disposition, inclination, and character of mankind. The Apostle justly forbids us to be conformed to such a mass of corruption, for, as the whole world lieth in the wicked one, we ought to put off every part of the mere human character if we desire truly to put on Christ. And to remove all doubt, he explains it by the contrary, when he orders us to be transformed in the renewing of our mind, for in the Scriptures these antitheses frequently occur, and add much to the clearness of the subject under consideration. But in this case, attend to the renewal which is demanded of us, 
namely not of the flesh only, for this word is explained by the Sorbonists to mean the lower and animal part of our nature, but of the mind, which is the most excellent part, and to which the philosophers assign complete sovereignty, for they denominate it the governing power, and reason, according to them, is imagined to be the queen in ruling over man, and distinguished as the highest for wisdom. Paul even casts this empress from her throne, and reduces her to nothing, when he teaches us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. For much as we flatter ourselves, yet the opinion of Christ remains true, that the whole man must be born again in every person who is desirous to enter into the kingdom of God, because we are entirely alienated both in mind and heart from the divine righteousness. To prove what is his will. Here you have the end and design for which we ought to put on a new mind, that, bidding adieu to our own counsels and desires, and those of our fellow men, we may devote ourselves entirely to the sole will of God, whose knowledge is true wisdom. But if the renewal of our mind is necessary for the purpose of proving what the will of the Most High is, we may hence see how much this mind is opposed to God. The epithets are added for the purpose of praising the will of infinite truth, that we may labour with greater cheerfulness to attain this object. And our obstinacy can only be reduced to order by ascribing the sure and lasting praise of righteousness and perfection to the will of God. The world is convinced that its works are good. Paul opposes such an opinion, and asserts good and evil are to be determined according to the will of God. The world applauds itself and delights in its own fancies and imaginations, but Paul affirms that nothing pleases God but his own commands. The world, that it may discover perfection, forsakes the word of God, and is inclined to adopt new inventions. Perfection is only to be found, according to Paul, in the will of infinite purity, and he proves that every one who transgresses this law of absolute holiness is deluded by a false imagination. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For I say, through the grace. If the illative particle for is not considered to be superfluous, this sentence will very well agree with the former. For since he was desirous that all our study should be now devoted to the will of God, his next object was to withdraw us from all vain curiosity. It may, however, be considered a mere affirmation, since this particle is frequently redundant in Paul, and the sense will in this instance also be very coherent. But before giving any command, he informs them of the authority with which he was entrusted, that they may pay the same attention to the word of Paul as of God himself. For his expressions convey the following meaning. I do not speak of myself, but as an ambassador of God I communicate to you those commandments which he enjoined myself. Grace, as in a former part of the epistle, means apostleship by which he commends the goodness of the Most Holy in bestowing this blessing, and intimates that he had not forced himself into such an office by any rashness of his own, but had engaged in it at the call of God. By such a preface, therefore, while he secures his own authority, he necessarily binds the Romans to obey him, unless they wish to despise God in the person of his servant. The precept, then, follows for the purpose of withdrawing us from the investigation of such subjects as can only harass the mind without edification, and Paul orders us not to undertake more than our capacity and vocation permit. He at the same time admonishes us to think and meditate only on such subjects as are calculated to make us sober and modest. I prefer this view of the passage to the translation given by Erasmus, that no one think proudly of himself, because this sense is more forced and does not so well agree with the context. The sentence, not to think more highly than he ought, shows that we exceed the bounds of wisdom if we engage ourselves in such subjects as ought not to occupy our attention. But to think soberly is to devote ourselves to those studies by which we may feel ourselves trained and educated to a due sense of modesty, according as God hath dealt to every one. Paul here expresses the cause and reason of the sober wisdom which he commends, for, since the distribution of graces is various, every one has determined upon the best manner for attaining wisdom, who confines himself within that grace of faith which is conferred upon him by the Lord. There is not only a useless affectation of wisdom in discussing subjects superfluous of themselves, 
and the knowledge of which is of no advantage, but even in obtaining an acquaintance with what is otherwise useful, if, by not considering the extent of our faculties, we exceed in temerity and boldness the measure of our understanding, and God does not suffer such unwarrantable eagerness to escape without due punishment. For we frequently observe a bewildering maze of absurd ravings take possession of men, who, by a foolish ambition, exalt themselves above the boundaries determined by the giver of all good. In fine, a very striking part of our rational sacrifice consists in every one presenting himself to God to be governed and directed by a mild and docile spirit. Moreover, Paul, in opposing faith to human judgment, restrains us from indulging our own opinions, and designedly prescribes at the same time a safe measure for the faithful, by ordering them in humility not to overstep the bounds marked out by their own imperfections. For, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. For as Paul now confirms the position that he had laid down, and by which he limited the wisdom of each believer in Christ according to the measure of his faith, and establishes it by considering the nature of his calling. For we are called on this condition that we may unite as in one body, since Christ has established the same society and communion among all his people that exists among the members of the human body, and because men could not form by any effort of their own so intimate a connection with each other, the Messiah became himself the bond of that union. Because, therefore, the same wisdom which is observed in the human body ought to exist also in the society of the faithful, Paul proves by this very comparison how necessary it is for each member of the body of Christ to consider what best suits his nature and character, what his capacity, what his calling. Since also this similitude has various parts, it can be applied in the following manner to the case under consideration. That as the members of our body have distinct powers, and are all distinct in themselves, and no one member possesses at the same time all powers, or takes to itself the offices which belong to others, so God has dispensed to us various endowments, and by this distinction established among us an order which he wished to be preserved, that each believer might regulate himself according to the measure of his own ability, and not thrust himself into duties belonging to others, and that no individual might desire at the same time to have all, but content with his own lot, voluntarily refrain from usurping the offices assigned to others. By expressly pointing out the communion that exists among us, he clearly intimates how great diligence ought to be exerted for appropriating to the common good of the whole body of the church the powers which each member individually possesses. Having Gifts Paul does not simply now preach concerning the cherishing of brotherly love, but he commends modesty and humility which are the best means for regulating the whole course of our lives and all our conduct. Every person is desirous to have so great a supply as to stand in no need from his brethren, but the very bond of this mutual communication consists in no individual having sufficient for himself, but in his being compelled to borrow from others. I confess, therefore, that the society of the pious consists in each being contented with his own measure, while he bestows upon his brethren the gifts which he has received, and suffers himself to be assisted in turn by the gifts of others. But the apostle was particularly desirous to repress that pride which he knew to be innate in mankind, and to prevent believers from being disappointed, because all gifts were not bestowed upon them. Paul, therefore, shows that every disciple of Christ has his own part assigned him, with the best intention and counsel of infinite wisdom, since it was necessary for the common salvation of the body that no single person should be so furnished with the fullness of gifts as to despise any of his brethren with impunity. Here, therefore, we have the chief object aimed at by the Apostle, that all things are not equally calculated for all, but the good things of our Heavenly Father are so distributed that each has a limited portion." Every individual also ought to be so intent upon bestowing his own gifts for the edification of the church, that none may forsake his own function and enter upon another's. For the safety of the church is preserved by this very beautiful order, and, 
as it were, symmetry, where each of himself so contributes to the common good, that what he hath received from the Lord as not to impede others, where each of himself so contributes to the common good, what he hath received from the Lord as not to impede others. Every perverter of this order fights with God, by whose ordination it was established. For the difference of gifts hath not proceeded from the decree of man, but because the Lord hath thought fit to dispense his graces in this manner. Or prophecy. He now adduces certain gifts for the purpose of exemplifying the truth of his statement, and shows how each ought to be employed in the use of his own powers, as the means for preserving his station. Since particular gifts are determined by their own boundaries, the mere declining from such fixed limits contributes to their corruption. This sentence, which is a little confused, ought to be arranged in the following order. He that hath prophecy, let him prophesy according to the analogy of faith. He that hath ministry, let him use it for ministering. He that hath doctrine, let him use it for teaching. Each member of the church, who shall keep his attention fixed on this as his mark to be aimed at, will confine himself within his own proper limits. This passage, however, is understood in various senses, for some mean by prophecy the power of prediction which flourished in the church at its commencement, as the Lord was at that time desirous by every possible means to commend the dignity and excellence of his kingdom. And what is added, according to the proportion of faith, they consider ought to be referred to all the clauses. But I prefer the opinion of those commentators who take the word in a more extended sense, and apply it to the peculiar gift of explaining revelation, according as any one executes with skill and dexterity the office of an interpreter in declaring the will of God. Prophecy, therefore, at this period, is nothing else in the Christian church than the proper understanding of Scripture, and a peculiar faculty of explaining the same, since all the ancient prophecies and all the oracles of God were contained in Christ and his gospel. For Paul understood it in this sense, 1 Corinthians 14.5, when he said, I wish you to speak with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, 1 Corinthians 13.9. For it does not appear that Paul was only desirous in this passage to recount those admirable graces by which Christ ennobled his gospel at the beginning, but he rather gives a statement of ordinary gifts which constantly remain in the church. Nor does the objection seem sufficiently valid that the apostle would have made this remark in vain to such characters as could not, by the Spirit of God, call Christ accursed. For since in another passage, 1 Corinthians 14.32, he testifies that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, and orders the first speaker to be silent if any revelation has been made to the person sitting. He may here also admonish prophets in the church to conform their prophecies to the rule of faith, and not wander from the line of truth. By the expression faith he means the first axioms of religion, and every doctrine not corresponding to these is thus proved to be false. There is less difficulty in the other clauses. Whoever is appointed a minister, let him perform his office by ministering, and let him not imagine that he is appointed to this honour on his own account, but for the sake of others, as if he had said, let him perform his office by executing the duty of a minister properly, that he may answer to his title. Thus also, when Paul afterwards recommends to teachers, under the name of teaching, solid edification, he means, let every powerful teacher know that his object is the true instruction of the church, and let him only meditate on the means by which he may render the church more learned by his doctrine. For he is a teacher who forms and instructs the church by the word of truth. He is powerful in the word of exhortation, who considers that his object is to exhort with efficacy. However close an affinity and connection these officers have with each other, they do not therefore cease to be various. None, indeed, can exhort without teaching, but a teacher is not immediately possessed with the power of exhorting. Now no prophet, or teacher, or exhorter can perform his office without ministering, but it is sufficient, if we preserve the distinction which we observed in the gifts of God, and know to be calculated for maintaining church order. He that giveth with simplicity. From these last clauses we see a clear proof of the legitimate use of God's gifts. By the words, those who give, Paul does not mean such as bestow anything of their own possessions, but deacons who preside in distributing the public property of the church. By the words, those who show mercy, he means widows and other ministers who were appointed to take care of the sick, according to the custom of the ancient church. For there is a great difference between that function which is employed in laying out what is necessary for the poor, and that office which is devoted to their care and management. 
to the former he gives the character of simplicity by which without fraud or respect of persons they may faithfully distribute what is entrusted to their care to the latter he gives the advice of showing mercy with cheerfulness that they may not by their moroseness which frequently happens diminish the kindness of their attention to the afflicted for as nothing affords more consolation to a patient or to any child of distress than the cheerfulness and alacrity of their attendants in affording assistance so on the other hand the gloomy countenances of friends servants or nurses seem to rebuke the sufferers although paul by rulers properly means elders to whom the government of the church was entrusted who were appointed to preside to rule and watch over the moral conduct of the members of the church yet it may be universally extended to every kind of ruler and governor for no small care is required from those on whom the security of all devolves no trifling assiduity is expected from such as have to devote their nights and days to the safety of the whole church the period when our apostle wrote clearly proves that he did not speak of certain civil rulers for at that time there were no pious magistrates but of elders appointed to act as censors of moral conduct let love be without dissimulation abhor that which is evil cleave to that which is good be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honour preferring one another not slothful in business fervent in spirit serving the lord rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing instant in prayer distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality let love paul intending now to treat of particular duties commences very properly with love the bond of perfection he enjoins a principle which is most necessary to be observed with respect to the commencement of this duty namely pure sincerity of mind and the removal of all guile and pretence from the heart for it is difficult to give a view of the ingenuity with which a large portion of mankind assume the appearance of that love which they really do not possess for they not only deceive others but impose upon themselves while they endeavour to believe that they entertain a very considerable share of love even for those whom they not only treat with neglect but in reality renounce and despise paul therefore declares that only to be genuine love which is free from all dissimulation and guile and every person can best judge for himself whether he entertains any feeling in the innermost recesses of his heart opposed to this noble and lasting affection the words following in the context good and evil have not a general meaning but by evil is intended that malicious iniquity which injures any person and good that kindness by which are afforded to others aid and assistance the antithesis very frequently occurs in scripture where vices are first prohibited and virtues afterwards commended i have neither followed erasmus nor the ancient interpreter in translating the participle hating for i think paul wished to convey the idea of abhorrence as opposed by antithesis not merely to benevolence but to the steadfast and warm attachment of a friend by brotherly love he can find no words sufficiently strong for expressing the ardour of that affection with which we ought to embrace each other for he calls it brotherly love and uses a greek word which signifies the mutual endearment that exists among relations and this is indeed the character of the affection which we ought to entertain for the sons of god the following precept is very necessary for preserving benevolence that each in honour prefers his brother to himself for no poison more efficaciously contributes to alienate the affections than the idea of our being despised and treated with contempt i do not altogether disapprove of the explanation that honour means every act of friendly kindness but the first interpretation which confines it to respect meets my approbation for as nothing is more opposed to brotherly concord than contempt arising from pride by which a person exalts his own character and treats others with indifference neglect or disdain so modesty by which due honour is paid to every one nourishes and supports love with the longest continuance and greatest power not slothful in business this precept is given because the life of a christian ought not only to be active but neglecting what may contribute merely to our own advantage we ought to devote our exertions to the promoting of the good of our brethren nor are we always to direct our attention to the virtuous but we must often use our utmost efforts for the most ungrateful and worthless finally because most duties can be performed only by an entire forgetfulness of ourselves we will never be properly prepared for our attendance on christ 
unless we urge ourselves forward to execute the office assigned us and labor with diligence to shake off all slothfulness and indolence paul by adding fervent in spirit shows how we may gain this excellence for the flesh like the ass is always torpid and therefore requires goads because it is the fervour of the spirit alone which corrects our sluggishness and on this account earnestness in doing good requires a zeal and ardour lighted up in our breasts by the spirit of god why then some may say does paul exhort us to this fervour i answer though it is the gift of god yet the faithful are enjoined these duties that they may shake off all torpor and fan the flame which is lighted up in their hearts from heaven for it frequently happens that the impulse of the spirit is suffocated and extinguished by our own fault the third advice serving the time pertains also to the same subject for as our course of life is short our opportunity for doing good soon passes away and on this account we ought to hasten with greater alacrity for the performance of our duty thus paul orders us in another passage to redeem the time because the days are evil it may also mean that we should know how to suit ourselves to a favourable opportunity for the instant seizing of a proper juncture for action is of very great importance paul however in this sentence appears to me to oppose serving the time to habits of procrastination and loitering besides as in many ancient copies this sentence is serving the lord although it may appear at first view foreign to the context yet i dare not entirely reject this reading if it is approved i doubt not but paul wished to refer to the worship of god those kind offices and other actions which we perform to our brethren for the purposes of nourishing our love as a means to increase the courage of the faithful rejoicing in hope these three are united together and seem in some measure to relate to the former sentence serving the time for he best suits himself to time and makes a proper use of the opportunity for pursuing his christian course with vigour who places his joy in the hope of a future life and endures tribulations with patience in whatever sense this passage may be understood for it does not make much difference whether you consider it to be joined with the preceding context or separated from it paul in the first place forbids us to rest on present blessings and to fix our joy in earth and earthly things as if our happiness were launched there but he orders us secondly to raise our minds to heaven where we shall be made partakers of a solid and perfect joy if our joy shall consist in the hope of a future life we shall thence experience patience in adversity because no sense of pain will be able to weigh down our heavenly joy these two therefore are mutually joined together joy which is conceived from the hope of future blessedness and patience in adversity for no child of adam will submit to bear the cross with a placid and quiet mind who has not learnt to seek his happiness from a source wholly independent of the world that he may mitigate and alleviate the bitterness of the cross by the consolations which are inspired by the sure hope of an immortal crown but since a patient enduring of the cross and steady hopes of our heavenly crown very much surpass our own strength we ought to be instant in prayer and unceasingly supplicate god not to suffer our minds to faint be dejected or broken down by any events in providence even the most disagreeable and disastrous paul also not only excites us to prayer but expressly requires perseverance because our warfare is unceasing and we are daily attacked by various assaults which champions even of the greatest bravery are unable to support without an occasional supply of new vigour unceasing continuance in prayer is the best remedy against fatigue for the necessities of the saints paul returns the duties of charity and the chief of these consists in performing acts of kindness to those destitute human beings from whom we expect to receive the least remuneration since therefore those are generally most treated with contempt who are more oppressed with the load of poverty than others and on this account require greater and more immediate assistance because benefits conferred upon such indigents are considered to be entirely thrown away the god of mercy commends these applicants to our care in a peculiar manner for then finally we prove the sincerity of our love when we assist our brethren without having any other view than the exercise of our kindness now hospitality namely the benevolence and liberality which are shown to strangers may justly be considered not the last kind of charity because these objects of mercy are the most destitute of all on account of their distance from relatives and paul therefore expressly recommends to us so important a duty 
We see, therefore, that we ought to watch over every person with greater care, in proportion as he is generally more neglected by the rest of our fellow men. Observe also the propriety of the expression communicating to the necessities of the saints, and the apostle thus intimates that we ought to supply the wants of our brethren with as much care as if we were assisting ourselves. The apostle particularly commands us to assist the saints, for, although our charity ought to extend itself to the whole human race, yet we ought to embrace with singular affection those of the household of faith who are bound to us by a still closer tie. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Bless. I am desirous to make, once for all, this remark to the reader, not to seek with too much exactness for a certain order in particular precepts, but to rest satisfied with having a few brief exhortations interspersed in this part of the epistle for forming the whole course of our life to piety and virtue. And these, too, derived from the principle in the beginning of the chapter. He will immediately give us precepts against retaliating injuries inflicted upon us by others. In this passage Paul requires a train of conduct yet more difficult, not to pray for evil and curses to light on the heads of our enemies, but to wish them every kind of prosperity and supplicate God to grant them every blessing, however much they may harass and treat us with the most barbarous inhumanity. We ought to labour after the attainment of this mildness with the more intense diligence in proportion to the difficulty of its attainment, for our Heavenly Father gives no command which He does not require us to obey nor is any excuse to be admitted if we do not attain that feeling and disposition by which God wishes us to be distinguished from wicked and worldly characters. I grant it is difficult and entirely contrary to human nature, but there is no duty, however arduous, which cannot be performed by the powerful aid of God, nor will he ever withhold his divine grace, provided we do not neglect to pray for it with ardent and incessant supplication." and though you can scarcely find one who has made such distinguished advancement in the divine law as fully to perform that commandment, yet none can boast himself to be a son of God or glory in the name of a Christian who has not in part put on this mind which was in the Lord Jesus, and does not daily wrestle against and oppose the feeling of enmity and hatred. Prayer for our enemies is more difficult than to refrain from the active revenging of an injury which we have suffered for there are some characters who, notwithstanding they hold their hands from violence, and are not driven on by a desire of injuring their enemies, would still be glad to find destruction or loss befall them from another quarter. Even if the injured are so much appeased as to wish no evil to their foes, yet scarce one in a hundred desires the safety and prosperity of the injurer. A large portion of mankind has immediate recourse without feeling any shame to horrid imprecations, but God, by his word, not only restrains our hands from any act of violence and injury, but also subdues all bitter feelings in our hearts. Nay, he even desires us to be solicitous for the eternal salvation of those who bring ruin on themselves by cruelly harassing us in an unjust manner. Erasmus was mistaken in the word bless, for he did not observe that it was opposed to railing and curses. Paul wishes God to be a witness of our patience, that we may not only bridle in the first place the violence of anger and indignation in our curses, but, by urgently praying for the forgiveness of our enemies, may prove our sorrow for the state and condition of such foes as cause their own voluntary destruction. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. This general exhortation is here very properly introduced, that believers may embrace each other with mutual affection and participate together in the common events allotted them by providence. In the first place, however, Paul enumerates the parts or kinds of our duty, namely, to rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep, for such is the nature of true and genuine Christian love that it would rather grieve with a brother when weighed down with the load of poverty and affliction than turn aside from the wailings of sorrow or disregard in the midst of its own delicacies, its own ease, or its own security, the moanings of distress. It is, in fine, our duty to accommodate each other as far as we possibly can, and in every circumstance of life to cultivate a reciprocal fellow-feeling, whether we have to condole with our brother in the cold blasts of adversity, or rejoice with them when basking in the sunshine of prosperity. Envy alone prevents us from rejoicing with a brother in his happiness, and the most barbarous inhumanity from sorrowing with him in his distress. 
let us therefore cultivate that sympathy with each other which may make us at the same time mutually harmonize in all our affections not thinking etc the greek preserves the antithesis more completely not thinking of high things by which he means that a christian ought not to aspire in an ambitious manner after those things by which he may surpass others nor indulge haughty feelings but meditate rather upon modesty and meekness for our excellence in the presence of god consists in these virtues not in pride or the contempt of our brethren this precept is properly added to the former for nothing breaks the unity mentioned by the apostle more completely than the exalting of ourselves and our aspiring to something still more elevated with a view to attain a higher situation i take the word humble in the neuter gender that the antithesis may be more complete every feeling of ambition therefore and every elevation of mind which insinuate themselves under the name magnanimity are here condemned by paul because moderation or rather submission is the chief virtue of the faithful which is distinguished by readily yielding an honour to another and not depriving him of his proper glory the sentence be not wise in your own conceits connects with the preceding part of the context for nothing inflates the mind more than a high opinion of our own wisdom and prudence he is desirous therefore that we relinquish this listen to the opinions of others and yield to their counsels for the translation arrogant adopted by erasmus is forced and unmeaning because paul would in this case repeat the same idea twice without additional emphasis we ought also ever to remember that one of the best remedies of arrogance is not to entertain too high an opinion of our own wisdom recompense no man evil for evil provide things honest in the sight of all men if it be possible as much as lieth in you live peaceably with all men dearly beloved avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay saith the lord recompense to no man evil this prohibition differs almost nothing from the following one in the nineteenth verse except that vengeance implies something more violent than that kind of recompensing evil which is treated of in this passage for we sometimes render evil for evil even when we do not demand retaliation as if we treat those maliciously from whom we receive no act of kindness for we are accustomed to value the merits of every one towards us or at least their claims of meriting anything at our hands that we may bestow our kind offices on those from whom we have either already received an obligation or expect some future favour again if any one denies us succour in our need by paying him according to the proverb in his own coin when our aid is required we shall afford him no more assistance than we have received there are also other examples of the same kind by which evil is returned for evil without manifest revenge provide things honest i do not object to erasmus's translation preparing in a provident manner but i prefer a literal translation because although every one is intent upon his own advantage with an eagerness surpassing the bounds of equity or is cautious in avoiding losses yet paul seems to require a care and attention altogether different the whole amount of his observations is that we should use our utmost exertions to edify all by our probity for as it is necessary for us to enjoy innocence of conscience before god so we ought to have a character distinguished for integrity among men for if god ought to be glorified by our good works he is deprived of this glory when men behold nothing in us worthy of praise nor is the glory of god only obscured but he is dishonoured for all our sins are brought forward by the ignorant to the disgrace of the gospel but when we are ordered to provide things honest in the sight of all men we must regard the design and end our design is not to secure the regard and praises of our fellow-men for christ warns us with much earnestness against such a design when he orders us to exclude men from beholding our good deeds and to admit god only as a witness but our object is to make men direct their attention to god and praise him that they may be roused by our example to the diligent pursuit of justice and be allured by the amiableness and excellence of our life and conversation to the love of god if we are defamed on account of the name of christ we do not cease to provide things honest among our fellow-men but the passage of corinthians as lying and yet true two corinthians six nine is fulfilled in our case if it be possible as much as lieth in you calmness and hence a composed manner of living which renders us amiable to all are no common endowments of a christian if we are desirous to pursue this we ought not only to be endowed with the greatest equity but the highest courteousness and easiness of manners 
which may not only gain the affections of the just and good but influence the minds of the wicked for a caution is necessary in this instance not so to affect the securing of the favour and esteem of men as to refuse to incur for the sake of christ the hatred of any human being when necessary yet we observe some who while they are worthy of being loved by all on account of the sweetness of their manners and the tranquillity of their minds yet are hated on account of the gospel even by their nearest relations easiness of disposition must not degenerate into flattery lest from our zeal to keep peace we soothe the vices of our fellow-men since therefore we cannot invariably expect to secure peace with all paul has added two sentences as exceptions if it be possible and as much as lieth in you we must resolve that according to the duties required by piety and love we ought never to violate peace unless compelled by one or other of these two causes for we ought to endure many things with an earnest desire for peace to forgive offences and kindly to remit the utmost rigour of justice that we may be always courageous as often as necessity requires to carry on our christian warfare with keenness and vigour for the friends of jesus cannot possibly enjoy eternal peace with the world which is under the dominion of satan dearly beloved avenge not yourselves the evil here corrected as hinted above is greater than the former already stated yet both spring from the same source namely an immoderate love of ourselves and innate pride which makes us indulgent to our own vices while we are inexorable to those of others since therefore this disease generally produces in all a furious desire for vengeance when we are in the least touched paul here commands us not to attempt to revenge ourselves but to give it into the hands of the lord and because such as have been once seized with this unruly passion cannot easily be curbed he uses a kind expression to retain us in the performance of our duty by calling us beloved the precept is neither to avenge nor to desire to avenge any injuries which we have received and the reason is added because we must give place unto wrath we mean by giving place unto wrath to grant the lord the power of judging and he is deprived of this by all self-avengers if therefore it is criminal to usurp the place of god we are not allowed to revenge ourselves because we anticipate the judgment of the most high who has expressed it to be his will to preserve for himself the execution of this office at the same time it is intimated that god will avenge those who patiently wait for his assistance and such as preoccupy this office leave no room for his aid and succour not only does paul prohibit us from executing vengeance with our own power but we are not to indulge such a desire in our hearts and on this ground any distinction between private and public vengeance is altogether vain and frivolous for that person is no more to be excused who implores the aid of the magistrate with a malevolent intention and with a determined resolution to revenge than we can acquit the voluntary contriver of plans for self-revenge nay we ought not always to ask god as will afterwards appear to avenge us for if our requests for this purpose arise from private affection and passion and not from the pure zeal of the spirit we do not make god our judge but a servant of our depraved desires we are not therefore to give place to wrath in any other way than by patiently waiting for the proper season for deliverance wishing and praying in the meantime that such as now vex and disquiet us may become our friends by repentance for it is written vengeance is mine he adduces his proof from the song of moses deuteronomy thirty two thirty five where the lord threatens to avenge his enemies and all god's enemies are such as torment his servants without any cause he who touches you he says touches the apple of mine eye let us therefore rest content with this consolation that such as cause us uneasiness when we do not deserve it will not escape unpunished nor will we by suffering make ourselves more liable to the injuries of the wicked but rather will afford opportunity to the lord our only avenger and deliverer to grant us assistance we ought not indeed to supplicate god to avenge our enemies but should pray for their conversion that they may become our friends and if they pursue their wicked career they will experience the same judgment which other despisers of god may expect nor does paul cite this testimony as if we might indulge in anger immediately after we have been injured and according to the natural desire of the flesh to pray to god to avenge our injuries but in the first place he teaches us that it is not our duty to demand vengeance unless we wish to arrogate to ourselves the part belonging to the fountain of all justice he secondly intimates that we have no cause to fear the insulting ferocity of the wicked if they see us bearing their treatment with patience because god does not assume to himself without effect the office of revenging our cause 
Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, he now shows how we may truly perform the precepts against revenge and against the recompensing of evil, namely by not only refraining from the infliction of any injury, but also by performing acts of kindness to those who have shown us such treatment. For it is a certain kind of indirect retaliation on our parts when we prevent those who have injured us from receiving a kindness. We must understand all kinds of good offices to be implied by the expression meat and drink, to the greatest extent of your power and in every transaction assist your enemy either by riches or counsel or labour he does not confine the term enemy to those who are hated by us but includes also such as are engaged against us in actual strife and variance and if they are to be assisted by acts of kindness with respect to wants of a temporal nature surely their eternal salvation ought never to be opposed by our imprecations heap coals of fire Paul shows the advantages we may derive from performing offices of humanity to our enemies, since we do not willingly throw away both our cost and pains. Some interpret coals to mean the destruction heaped upon the head of an enemy if we treat the unworthy with kindness and conduct ourselves very differently from what they deserved at our hands, since we will thus double the guilt of our enemy. Others understand by this expression that such kind treatment will excite mutual love in the breast of our adversary. I take it in a more simple sense that his mind will be broken by one of two ways, for our enemies will either be softened by kindnesses, or, if his atrocious disposition is not made more mild, he will be grieved and troubled from the testimony of his conscience, feeling itself confounded and overwhelmed with our goodness. Be not overcome of evil. This precept seems to be given for the purpose of confirming his position. We have to contend with the most perverse dispositions. If we endeavour to retaliate, we confess ourselves to be conquered. If, on the contrary, we render good for evil, we display by such conduct an invincible constancy of mind, and this is truly the most beautiful and glorious kind of victory. And its advantage is not only imagined, but in reality felt, since the Lord grants the most desirable success that can be conceived to their patience. On the contrary, whoever shall endeavour to overcome evil by evil will perhaps by his wickedness overcome his enemy, but it will be to his own ruin, for by pursuing such a line of conduct he is fighting under the banners of Satan. End of section 18